Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, climate change, carbon emissions, and the EPA. So Richard, since we last got together, the Environmental Protection Agency has rolled out its new requirements to limit carbon emissions. They're looking for a 30 percent reduction from 2005 to 2030. And there, there's a lot to explore here, but let's start sort of big picture and then move in from there. So before we talk about means, we have to define ends. This, of course, is all being justified as an effort to combat climate change, something that President Obama has been vehement about. Throughout his time in office, the president said earlier this year, Richard, that the debate is settled. Climate change is a fact. Are, are you as confident as he is? I'm as confident as I am on this as I am on Obamacare. No, the debate is not settled. I mean it's an extremely difficult topic on which there are lots of differences to be had. And uh, somebody who's a, what I would describe as a moderate skeptic with respect to the stronger claims of the environmental movement, I hate being called a denier, which is intended to bring up the images of the Holocaust. Holocaust involved the greatest tragedy perhaps in the history of human life um, where you have all the bodies lying there in their desecrated state. Uh, this is a prediction about the way in which the world is going to look sometime down the road. Uh, the models are extremely complicated. The claims with respect to global warming have been hotly contested on both sides. Um, it seems to me that what you have to do is to sit back, first develop a normative framework, and then answer the positive question, just how serious is this threat? Because if you have the right normative framework about pollution, it doesn't tell you what the answers could be unless you have some actual empirical confidence in your judgments as to the severity of consequences. Okay, walk us through the the legal backdrop here because President Obama tried to get a cap and trade program through Congress in his first term. Couldn't do it. That's why this is coming out of the administrative state now, out of the EPA. The notion that the EPA, however, has the authority to regulate carbon dioxide emissions was not without controversy. Walk us how that Walk us through how that developed on the legal side. Yes. Well, this goes back to the great decision of Massachusetts against the EPA, which was decided, I think, in 2007. And the question that had to be faced was whether or not, if you looked at the various interlocking provisions of the Clean Air Act, it was appropriate to describe carbon dioxide as though it were pollution, at which point the administration would have the jurisdiction to deal with the issue. And in dealing with this, the Republicans gave a fairly thorough examination of carbon dioxide compared to every other known pollutant on the list and said this is an essential gas for life. If you start looking at the quantities of pollutants that are regulated under other provisions of the statute, anybody who exhales heavily after a runout becomes a stationary source and can be subject to government regulation. The numbers just don't fit. The structure doesn't fit. And so therefore what happens is you think you have to boot this thing back to Congress to get them started. Uh, Justice Stevens, who's been very much on this issue, takes the opposite position. I thought he did a lot of fancy Dan footwork with respect to the statutory language and also with respect to the precedents. The most notable was a very careful and I thought quite good opinion by Sandra Day O'Connor in a case called Brown against Williamson decided around 2000 in which she tried to figure out what the definition was a drug was and said, you know, in ordinary English, uh, cigarettes aren't drugs. Nobody's making any claims that they have therapeutic fitness. And she says you can't figure out what a term means in isolation. You have to put it in the broader context of the statute to see if it fits within the scheme. And when you do that with carbon dioxide, it simply doesn't fit. 
So I actually thought that the opinion was wrong on this question, just as a technical matter of how you read the language, wholly independent of what you think about the issue. Now, once you decide it's a pollutant and you've got a Republican administration, they can then come to the situation that they've looked at all the costs and benefits and they don't really think that regulation is going to be appropriate. But come a new administration to with the Obama administration, if in fact the carbon dioxide falls within the scope of the EPA and the air statutes, then in effect they can change the situation and impose fairly comprehensive regulations on what is to be done. And that point, of course, the issue depends upon what's the urgency that you think this has, because everybody who thinks about pollution, I think, takes the view that it is a serious wrong. Nobody would come up and said, you know, I've looked at the nature of the human lungs, and there's really nothing wrong with sulfur dioxide. What people ought to do is to go around outside wearing masks so that industrials can pollute to their heart's content. I don't think there's anybody who's saying that particular position. Uh, the question is, is this a pollutant? How serious it is? And what are the devices that should be used? And this is a complicated issue, which goes back, as I, if you want me to, I could talk about it, uh, to the common law of nuisance which developed very early on in our history and was always thought to be perfectly compatible with the general principles of laissez-faire. Well, uh, to that point, I mean one of the tools that the states have at their disposal to reduce carbon emissions under the new regulations is a, is a cap-and-trade system, which is something that progressives are always trying to remind people on the right it was originally something of a conservative idea. So let's put carbon dioxide aside for a minute because the controversy there – Take a less loaded example, sulfur dioxide, which you mentioned, which causes acid rain. That was regulated under the Clean Air Act with a cap-and-trade system. If you have something uh, that deserves the regulation, is that something that would be objectionable to a classical liberal? It sounds as if that's pricing and externalities, which from a market approach I would think you would want. Well, you got it right. I mean it is one of the great wonders of the world. I, I read a column by Paul Krugman the other day um, which essentially assumes that anybody who disagrees with him is a devotee of Ayn Rand. And I have to tell you I've never read either Atlas Shrugged or The Fountainhead. And, and having read some of the descriptions of it, I'm not particularly inclined to do so in the short run, certainly not for inspiration on these issues. Look, I think that the libertarian position, the naked, unvarnished libertarian position works perfectly well if you're trying to scroll on entrepreneurs who go into a world and come up with products that everybody wants and sells them at a price that other people are willing to pay. Basically, the entrepreneur gets X dollars for himself and he probably generates benefits to the community that are tenfold or a hundredfold as large. What's there not to like if, in fact, the wealth that you create by selling into a voluntary marketplace produces greater wealth to the individuals in aggregate to whom you sell? But pollution's in a completely different game. Um, forget about the cap and trade for a second. Just start with a single polluter and a single victim of pollution. Whether you're doing Roman law, medieval English law, 19th century law, 20th century law, nuisance has always been a tort. It's been the kid sister to the tort of trespass. In fact, the lawyer who got the best explanation as to when you regulate and don't regulate it was a man named George Bramwell, a baron in the last second half of the 19th century in England, and he was a very staunch libertarian in terms of his general beliefs about the economic marketplaces. And the rule with respect to a single nuisance is that the guy who has to bear the pollution, the noise, the filth, the stench, and the odors of somebody else gets an injunction to stop the behavior behavior 
and gets damages for the interim losses that are not covered by the injunctions. So the strong property rights theorists have always believed that nuisances are something that you regulate. I could recall years ago, I was on a panel with Arthur Schlesinger, um, who was a progressive, and he starts talking about how all you libertarians don't want to do anything about pollution. I said, you're just in the wrong church, guy. This is not the way in which we think. Um, We have always believed in, in regulation. The question is how you minimize the distortions. When it turns out that you have so many sources of pollution and so many victims of pollution, often the same people, that having 2 billion private rights of action, each for 20 cents, for $20, for $2,000, is so completely unwieldy that you have to use a regulatory scheme. And I basically took this position in print in an article I wrote called Nuisance Law, Corrective Justice and Its Utilitarian Constraints, which I wrote in 1979 when for the first time I started to address these issues rather systematically. For obvious reasons, um, this hasn't been the talking point that the Obama administration has been leading with. But even they admit that if they hit the reductions they're aiming for, they're not going to have any effect taken in isolation on climate. The idea is that this gives the U.S. enough credibility when we're dealing with other countries, with India or China, to say, look, we took care of our end. Now you come to the table with with your emissions. Uh, what would you say the realistic chances of that are, Richard? I think this argument is incredibly naive and exactly will have the opposite effect. This is actually something I wrote about in a little noted article in the Suffolk Law Review in 2010. <laughs> My view is I'm a Chinese guy. I'm looking at all these alarmists in the West. I don't think they're telling anything like the proof. So fine, you guys want to reduce your pollutants by 10%. I'm going to increase mine by 10% because I think the current levels of perfectly sustainable. And so this is not a situation where if you put your first best foot forward, they're going to reciprocate. This is a case in which you're dealing with people who are your enemies, not your, protect, your potential friends. You put your foot forward, they'll cut it off. And so leading by example strikes me as being completely naive. Now, I don't want to go to the other extreme and start to say, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to force the Chinese down by doubling the level of pollution that we have so that they're going to have to cut there so they don't choke either. I think that would be totally irresponsible. What's the best thing to do? Well, look at the kind of record we've had in the United States. Uh, Pollution, particularly pollution for unit output is going down. The technology improvements are across all industries. Fracking is a much safer and more energy efficient device now than it was even two or three years ago. Even the solar stuff and the wind stuff is a little bit better. But uh, given the fact that they are so much more expensive than the other things, they'll never be more than a tiny fraction of the market. So what you do is you try to drive technological innovation, use prices to keep the things down, Tax the externality if you think it's a serious one, and slowly you'll get things into equilibrium. One of the nice things about this area is that coal produces all sorts of crappy stuff that comes out, not just carbon dioxide. And if you could reduce the total level of emissions on on nitrous oxide, sulfur dioxide, and anything else, the cleaner burning stuff will certainly do better. And a lot of the stuff that comes out is methane, which is one of the big pollutants, but that's also natural gas. So one of the things you should be able to do is to take the waste outputs of certain kinds of production and make them the inputs as a different source of energy. Final question that I'll ask you, and this is, I guess, I guess more of a governing question. I mean, the issue here isn't President Obama being lawless. The EPA has this authority based on the Supreme Court ruling. But there's a question there, isn't there, that this is such a 
this is such a reshaping of the way that a, a big sector of the economy works. Couldn't one make the argument that by the very nature of it, a, a, a leader, particularly in executive capacity, has a, a, a duty or should, should at least have a strong inclination to try and work this through the legislative process, to try and build some level of social cohesion around something that is effectively a, a revolutionary development in one part of the economy? Well, this is exactly the same debate that we had over Obamacare. And, right. you know, when you talk to most Democrats, what they do is they come up and they announce that we try to work all sorts of compromises. The Republicans were adamant. We had the votes. We did it ourselves. But the only debate on the Democratic side was whether you had single payer on the one hand or this uh, odd conglomeration of Obamacare private market exchanges. And there was no effort to cooperate. Now the Democrats think that the Republicans are hopelessly opposed. The Republicans think that the Democrats are totally scandalous. I'm sitting there as somebody who's kind of a doubter on all of this stuff. And what I think is that the president has so polarized the environment, the only way he could go is unilateral. But if he should lose the Congress or should the Democrats should lose the presidency in 2016, you're going to get the Republicans playing tit for tat and you come back in the opposite direction. What I do think in effect is that for the debate to be correct, somebody has to be less than hysterical about the empirical stuff. There were a series of very strong predictions about global warming made 10 years ago, made eight years ago by Al Bohr and his inconvenient truth. And those predictions have proved to be wrong. There's been a steady increase in the level of carbon dioxide and no change in basic temperatures in the world on a global level over the last 16 or so years. Who knows whether this will last? I don't want to be dogmatic on this question. But the idea that somehow or other the crisis is already upon us, that the past evidence has shown the truth, what it does is it's so hysterical that it pushes people on the other side to the other extreme. And if what the president would to come forward and say, you know, the data really doesn't support us, but the long-term risks of global warming are sufficiently serious um, that what we have to do is to think about all possibilities. And I'm willing to talk with you about which ones we think about first and how we want to start with this. You know, I can think of all sorts of ways, and I did propose them, on what you could do to soften the blow of Obamacare so that it won't implode, as it will, I think, if you try to impose the employer mandate in the form that is now done. And you can think of all sorts of very sensible intermediate positions on dealing with energy. Let me just give you one and then we could stop. Right now what happens is we grandfather old sources of pollution and place very high barriers for new sources of pollution. So a plant which is 10 times as safe as one in existence can't get an EPA improvement. What all you have to do is to stop giving grandfathered protection and announce that we're going to charge externality taxes based upon the amount of pollution. The old plants will shut down and the new plants will open up. You can do that right now if you get rid of the word new as it exists in the EPA. And yet the Democrats won't make this kind of proposal. And it seems to me that the Republicans haven't done much to put it forward either. But this is a huge deal. When I taught environmental law, I was just amazed at the very great willingness of everybody to top to tolerate modifications of existing plants, which made them from miserable to merely horrible. And yet at the same time, you get this huge barrier against the creation of new plants, which are safer than the modified old plants. This has got to change. And in this current topsy-turvy world, you have so many people throwing epithets at one another that nobody actually starts to ask this question. If you had one simple fix to start with, what would you do? 
And this would be the one that I would do. If you got a better one, name it to me. Rather than going cosmic, I think what you ought to do is tone down the rhetoric and see whether or not you could come up with an incremental proposal that could command the respect of both sides because of its high return relative to the cost that it imposes. All right, Richard. Thank you as always and thanks to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.